Can I use the word ballsy? I mean, yes, for, for a new editor to walk in and have call in the, the head of the spotlight team and say, I'd like you to go investigate the Catholic Church, it takes a little guts, guts. <laughs>
great editors before Marty, uh, but they all had one thing in common, and I guess I'm a part of that. Uh, we all came up through the same system at the same paper, and uh, we were all, as happens in many institutions, acculturated to uh, the city and um, the environment we worked in. And along comes a guy who knew nothing about Boston, came from the Miami Herald in a state, Florida, which has the best public records law in the country. Uh, Massachusetts is one of the worst in, in that category. We're like the Mississippi. And all of a sudden, he sees something, an outsider's view and a very smart editor that none of the rest of us had thought about. Well, why, aren't we, why don't we go to court and challenge uh, this judge's ruling that sealed these important documents in the, in the Gagan case? And that's how we, we started his very first day as editor. I kind of, uh, can I use the word ballsy? I mean, yes, for, for a new editor to walk in and have, call in the, the head of the spotlight team and say, I'd like you to go investigate the Catholic Church, it takes a little <laughs> guts. guts. You know, the movie makes a lot of Marty being Jewish, and I, but I think what is less important is, I think being Jewish is less important, and what's more important is what Robbie says, which is that it was a pair of fresh eyes coming from a state where public records are much more public than they are in Massachusetts. And, you know, I think we tend to assume that when the new boss shows up, he or she knows exactly what he or she wants to do. They have a plan. Marty has said very openly in the, in the past few months, as we've done a lot of public speaking, he didn't know what he really he wanted to cover when he came to Boston. He had been in Miami, which is a wild and wacky news town. He thought Boston was going to be probably boring in comparison. He didn't know a lot about the city. He was just literally reading the paper every day looking for interesting things. And when he saw a mention about all these files sealed of this accused priest, he thought, why haven't we tried to unseal these files? That's what fresh eyes do when you come to town. The rest of us had sort of just reflexively began saying, oh, the Gagan files, those are sealed by the court. Embarrassing for a newspaper, but it hadn't occurred to us to go and unseal them. And, and is it true, as portrayed in the movie, that the newsroom was a little resistant? Oh, we've done that story already. Was that, was that true? Uh, I, I, you know, it, it was... Uh, I'd say a little bit over-dramatized, but the, the Globe had been through this period in the early 90s where they had reported extensively on the case of another priest, Father Porter, from another uh, diocese. And uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston was so upset at the Globe, and I think this is reflected in the film. Uh, I've seen it eight times, but I haven't seen it in about eight weeks. Uh, uh, I, I think this is ref reflected in the film, but in, in 92, the Cardinal issued a statement calling down the power of God on the media and especially the globe. And a week later, our editor, Jack Driscoll, fell and broke his leg and got an infection and was quite ill. And everybody took that. I mean, we kind of <laughs> joked about it. But the globe had had this sort of long-running thing with the church and some of the characters who came, who, who we tried to interview years later, I think other reporters had dealt with them, and you know there was—I I wouldn't say there was uh, weariness at the subject, but a lot had been written about Porter and then and then Gagan, but nobody had cracked, really cracked the code. The system and the system gone after the system. Right. So you guys are journalists; you go after facts, um, but then when you sign on to participate in a you know, fictionalized version of a real story, you're agreeing to a certain amount of license that you, you've already referred to here. 
in this case, it, it worked out really well because, I mean, everybody who's written about this movie and I think has talked about the authenticity and how it really just feels like you're in the newsroom and um, it feels like these people are the reporters and, and, and are the subjects. But I'm wondering, you know, it could have gone another way. Um, can you tell me your thoughts about initially working on this project, agreeing to do it, and then, and how you worked with the filmmakers? Well, I, more than the rest of us, was terrified by this process. I flat out thought it was a bad idea to get involved with Hollywood. I thought, I thought no good could come from it. I mean, were you all talking together about doing this? You know, this actually originated in a way at Columbia. I mean, Columbia's graduate school had done a, a case study on our reporting, which, you know, was probably read by about five people, but uh, these... these and, a, and a number of students, I'm sure. And, uh, but but uh, two young producers in, in Hollywood, of course, everybody's young by my, by my standard, but Nicole Rockland and Bly Faust uh, thought what, how we made the sausage would make a film, and we were immediately skeptical on that, and, and I, I kid Bly now, I said, if, when they came to Boston, if she hadn't been buying us breakfast at the Ritz, we never would have met with them. And they were convinced that what we did or how we did it would make a film. And uh, uh, Sasha was, I think, the most skeptical, fearing that they would sensationalize uh, the film. And at one point, I have to say, uh, they sent the script, which was very sober, soberly done and understated. They sent it to a script consultant in Hollywood. I would love to have that job. And the script consultant came back and said, you know, this film really needs to have a love or a sex interest in it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm only quoting Sasha as she was horrified immediately because, you know, after a few days of deliberation, she dawned on her that since she was the only woman in the cast, that she'd likely be one of the people. And, um, and, and Tom McCarthy, the director, to his... Uh, great credit, said, no way. Just as he said when somebody suggested that in the Patrick McSorley scene when he talks about the ice cream dripping down his arm when he's being molested, that somebody suggested that they do a video flashback just showing the arm. And he said, no. Just let him say what happened. And that'll be more powerful than it was. But I was very concerned. And really, the only reason I agreed to participate is I was convinced the movie would never get made. I mean, I figure the financing hurdles were way too high, the topic is too grim, who in the world is going to want to see a movie about priests abusing children? So I thought there's really no harm done in participating because it will never result in anything. But then Tom McCarthy, the director, and Josh Singer, the co-writer, began coming to Boston repeatedly over a period of probably a year and a half, sitting down with us together and individually for hours, taping everything we said, returning again to clarify facts, to try to triangulate, because many times Mike and Robbie and Matt and I had different memories of what had happened from a decade ago, so they had to reconcile those conflicting memories. And the more they came, the more we really began to have faith in what they were doing. And then they involved us every step of the way. When they had a script, they had us go through the script word by word. If anything didn't ring true or seemed inaccurate or inauthentic, they changed it based on our feedback. They invited us on set as much as we wanted to be there. My grandmother's depicted in the movie, and initially the script had called her Gran, and we never called her Gran. And in fact, in Southie and Dorchester, many grandmothers were known as Nana. And at first I thought, it's too minor, I can't mention it. But then I finally said to them, every time I hear Gran, this doesn't seem right to me. And if you want street cred in Southie and Dorchester, you probably want to call her Nana. They changed the script, you know. 
There's a scene where the John Slattery, Ben Bradley character goes to the Mark Ruffalo, Mike Rosendi's house. I think he has a pizza. In the original script, I think he had a bottle of Jameson's. I mean, Jameson's and pizza? Come on. <laughs> In East Boston? I and mean... It, it's also such a cliche of what people think reporters drink. And so we, we said to them, don't take out the Jamesons. And they took out the Jamesons. And collectively, I think those little changes really added up to a very authentic story. The newsroom you saw, well, let's say the spotlight office that you saw in the film uh, was built as an exact replica in a rented, vacant Sears warehouse in Toronto. <laughs> and next to it, they built uh, an eight-ninths replica of the Globe newsroom, which is not quite the length of a football field, but it's pretty big. Why, what happened to the other ninth, I have been una <laughs> unable to determine. So, so those were the, s the sets. I mean, the, the newsroom set, they obviously couldn't do it in the Globe newsroom because it's a seven-day-a-week operation, but they did, for instance, send the sound engineers to Boston to collect ambient noise from the real newsroom that they then dubbed into, made background noise for the what was shot in the fake newsroom. Is there anything in the film that, that makes either of you cringe a little bit? Like, ooh, it wasn't exactly like that, or they've gone too far? I don't, for me, I don't think cringe. I mean, I think the places where they took dramatic license were appropriate. There's a very dramatic scene where Marty Baron is sitting us down and saying, show me that this happened from the top down. That's what I want. We never actually sat in his office and had that conversation, but he did send an email to Robbie that Robbie had saved for a decade, and that Tom and Josh used the exact words from the email to make dialogue. Again, I think that's appropriate dramatic license. And, and who, who was it who saved all the contemporaneous emails from 2001? Mm -hmm. Kept it for a decade. <laughs> Thank you. I really love the way your interviewing style is portrayed, Sasha. Can you talk a little bit about the challenge of you know, interviewing people who have been victimized and ignored? And, and did you feel that, that this was an accurate reflection of, of what your, your technique is? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, it was very, very hard in 2001 to get people, victims, to talk to us about this because I mean, most cases, these were adult men who had been abused as children or teenagers. And decades later, they were still embarrassed and ashamed and humiliated. Some of them were married and had never told their spouses. So I really give credit to the people who did speak to us because that emboldened other people to feel comfortable coming forward. But the first victim I ever talked to was a guy named Arthur Austin. He was on the record, so he wouldn't mind me sharing his name. And I met him at Chili's, this chain restaurant. And I will never forget that Arthur cried through the entire conversation. And I remember the waitress very uncomfortable about whether she should approach the table. But that told me early on the depth of damage, basically. I mean, you know, sexual abuse of any kind is incredibly hard to ever recover from. When it's a priest, particularly in a very Catholic city in a very revered era, it's that much more uh, of a violation. So I think that it took incredible sensitivity and patience and listening and, um, you know, the fundamentals of any kind of interviewing just... It, it, even more so in this case. And what about that amazing scene of knocking on the door and having Father Paquin open the door? Did that happen? It did, although there was some dramatic license in the scene, which is that two of us interviewed Father Paquin separately, me and a colleague, Steve Kirkjian. Mine was on the doorstep, as you see in the movie. Steve actually got into the living room. 
But that conversation didn't happen until after the movie ends. You know, the movie ends as we publish our first story. And I think that was a very smart filmmaking decision because we then reported for another year and a half. We wrote a thousand stories. If they tried to put that in the movie, it would have been overwhelming. It would have had to be a miniseries. So they decided we'll stop as the first story ends. But they wanted an interaction with a priest, which hadn't happened up to that point in real life. So they pulled back in time by about three weeks, the interview. And because Steve Kirkshen hadn't joined us yet, I got the whole interview. But yes, and I think what that scene tells you is it reminds her of the importance of the door knock, right? Sometimes the reporter who goes to the house rather than just works the telephones can get something you might on, uh, not on the telephone. Yeah, it's an amazing moment as she's scrambling for your uh, notebook. Yeah. <laughs> Robbie, I understand that the Cardinal's henchman, the Pete character in that amazing scene in the, in the uh, bar, is kind of a composite. Is that right? He's not, there's not exactly a person like this? or. Yeah, he's a composite of about four people who we dealt with who had advised the uh, the cardinal. People leaning on you? Uh, there was a little bit of pressure, particularly when we began approaching people, uh, particularly lawyers, who had each of them had a piece of, of the puzzle. Um, but they didn't have enough of it to have a sense of how widespread and this cover-up was and how many priests it involved. So as we worked the story over, over the five-month period and gathered more of the information ourselves and were able to go back to people, each of whom had a piece, and were able to tell them what we were finding, people became cooperative and, and, and in the end you know, gave us the names, certainly of the 70 who's, uh, initially whose cases the church had settled secretly. I think two of the lawyers referred to the payments as hush money. The response to this film has been quite incredible, especially among young journalists. You and I ran into a journalist on the subway who, uh, when she found out who you were, uh, was very excited and inspired. I think so many people are feeling inspired. But I'm also wondering, given the current state of what's going on in journalism, is, this a, is there a false hope here about what's portrayed in this movie? First of all, I mean, the internet has obviously hollowed out our newsrooms and taken away the revenue that for many papers uh, made this kind of reporting possible and many papers have given up on it. Uh, editors have decided that this is uh, too many papers, they've decided this is a luxury we can no longer afford when in fact uh, it's a necessity that we cannot afford to do without. That uh, when you ask readers what they value most in their newspaper, it's reporting that holds powerful people and, and institutions accountable. And unfortunately that's gone missing from much of American journalism in the last decade. You know, Tom McCarthy, the director, has said that if he has one regret, it's that if anyone watches this movie and hasn't been keeping tabs on the state of the newspaper industry, they might think that everything is alive and well. And he, he kind of wonders and if he should have added some addendum that basically says this was a decade ago when resources were much higher. But I mean, I think, you know, the Globe, and this is sort of ironic, the Globe is, in, is shown as such a good light in the movie. On the other hand, we just had another round of layoffs. You know, we have no more foreign bureaus gone. 
we used to have a national roving reporter who went around the country covering national news, gone. But one thing that we have not only preserved but expanded is investigative reporting. When we were on Spotlight, it was four people. It's now six, you know, 50% larger. So I think the, you know, the, glo the globe has realized that if there's one thing that is most fundamental to what we do, it should be investigative reporting. So whereas it's tempting to be the first thing to cut because it's expensive, in fact, it should be the thing you most preserve. It was great to hear about the Globe, you know, increasing the size of the Spotlight team of 50%, showing their commitment to investigative reporting. Another way that they're doing that, actually, is through a new fellowship they announced with the Hollywood companies behind the film. They set up a $100,000 fellowship to promote investigative journalism, and they're going to be announcing the first uh, fellow or team of reporters in June, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. It's too late for us to apply. A little too late. Okay. And we have uh, our own special event podcast to tell you a little bit about. We're not going to give it too much away, right? We're not going to give it away. But our next episode of On Assignment is going to feature some podcast superstars. And the hint that we'll give you is that they, it is DuPont related. So you have to tune in for that. A very special conversation. I'm sure that there will be standing room only, just like the Spotlight audience was. It was kind of astonishing. We had filled up our room. We had anticipated big crowds, so we had a spillover room. We filled up the spillover room and actually had to turn people away. And when it came time for the Q&A, people were lined up at the mics. So now we're going to go to a little bit of their Q&A. touches on this, and I wonder if you would expand a bit on the temptation, the possible temptation of, in the course of an investigation, wanting to get involved. I know when I've reported stories, uh, um, people I'm talking to will you know, want advice on getting a lawyer, a therapist, something that would skew the story. So can you talk from a personal basis about journalism ethics in relation to investigating and forcing yourself not to get involved? Oh, that's a touchy question. Uh, for, first off, the overriding uh, imperative on a story like this is, and the way for us to really be involved, is to get the story out so that hopefully someone can bring an end to this, this, this kind of abuse. Uh, I remember, uh, in, in the 70s that there was a journalism textbook that I think was called Objective Reporting. And I wouldn't want to hire an objective reporter. I want a reporter who's fair, who's thorough, who can present both sides of the story. But on a story like this, you can't be objective. I mean, I, I can't recall a story that we've ever had where uh, the distinction between good and evil was so apparent. So, of course, we we weren't involved with, but we, we, we felt so much for the, the victims and the survivors, and it made us angry and drove us to, to do this reporting as boring and tedious as it actually was in real life. My name is Nathan McDermott. I actually graduated from the J School last year. Um, I guess my question is for Robbie. There's a scene where you kind of confronted Jim Sullivan as the character in the movie, the the lawyer for the church, and he gave you, he kind of confirmed the names. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about how getting, how the best method to get people to 
confirm or talk to you when it's kind of against their interest? Uh, first of all, he was a composite of about five or six different lawyers. A couple of them were, were people, were friends, actually friends of mine, and uh, st still are. But, uh, but, but one of them came to the Boston premiere of the film and reminded me that he had uh, given us 30 of those 70 names, and I said, well, do you want to go public with that? And he said, oh, no, 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 <laughs> not yet. The, the question is, how do you get people to talk to you, leaving aside the survivors, which is, is, is a, a, a separate challenge? I mean, my view of the kind of reporting we do is that when you're going to write something about somebody that they don't particularly like or they're not going to care for, you have to explain to them, you have to persuade them that it is in their interest to, to give a full interview because only in that way will their views be represented and, and the piece be balanced. Hello, James Medor. I'm also a J School graduate and I'm a business reporter at Newsday. Um, my question's about Boston and how Boston may have helped you and hurt you in doing your reporting. You're reporting on a major institution in the city. Did it help do the reporting that Boston is so Catholic and there, there is so much interest in the church? I think it helped that we were all raised in Catholic families because even though, as the movie says, we weren't practicing Catholics anymore, we understood kind of the psyche I mean, if you weren't Catholic, you might think, why would you have sent your son with a priest on a ski trip on the weekend? But if you grew up in the families we did, you would understand that there's really no greater honor at, at, that, at that time in the city's history. So I think that helped us. I mean, I think, um, I think that Boston was in a way the perfect story for the story to break in because, the perfect city for the story to break in because it is so enormously Catholic. It was so influential. Um, so I think it was uh, both an accident and kind of perfect that this is where it became so public. There was a scene in the movie where the uh, policy of celibacy was mentioned, but only a little bit. And my question was, I felt that that was the biggest elephant in the room uh, about why possibly this is happening. Did you do any research in terms of whether the Protestant church has this issue or whether this issue happens in any other religion? And whether the fact that there is celibacy as a policy affected the whole outcome. Well, well you know, uh, bef before it became apparent that this was so widespread, the, the Catholic Church, not just in Boston, but other places around the country, had these sort of one-off situations with a priest here and a priest there. And they always assured the press and the public that this was a single aberrant priest We've taken care of it, and we're no different than the Methodists or the Lutherans, uh, who other caregivers, Boy Scouts, are thought to have an abuse rate that hovers at or around 1%. Uh, in fact, we found in Boston, uh, despite Richard Sipe's estimate of 6%, we found that it was actually closer to 10% of the priests, 250 priests over 50 years who were credibly accused of, of abusing children. And so you have to ask, what's the difference between people who heed vocations in the Catholic Church and those who do in the Lutheran ministry uh, or the Episcopal Church? And the, the one difference that sticks out is celibacy, that you're essentially in the Catholic Church, uh, you're saying, we'd like you to give your life to God. You can never have uh, sexual activity uh, with any other person, and you can never have a a loving relationship with anyone else, and by the way, you're gonna live in an old drafty rectory by yourself, 
and one has to question what what is the applicant pool and but you you get you get a debate whenever you raise this in front of an audience that that has priests some of them get quite angry and say it's got nothing to do with celibacy now when the church did a study on this had the John Jay College do a study one of the things they blamed us on was the sexual revolution I did have a priest tell me that um, he told me that he and his colleagues believed that if you were fooling around with little boys, you were still obeying your, ce- your celibacy vow because it's not a girl. And I think that gives you a window into just how twisted some of the rationalizations were for why they did what they did. Journalism has become basically just clickbait and it's, it's sensational stories at the moment. Uh, what are we, how do we, what are some good institutions to follow and like where are some good places that still do real journalism and like practical journalism? And um, another question that's kind of definitely off topic, but like Donald Trump, what do we do about that? <laughs> For rational thinkers, what do we do about Donald Trump? Speaking of clickbait. <laughs> Donald Trump as journalist? No, Donald, the people who support Donald Trump as journalists. What's the alternative to clickbait in the media landscape now, do you think? R- read the Times. Uh, you know, I would say, look, it costs money to do good journalism, and we all need to support it. Uh, my colleague uh, to my right is always reminding people, you know, if you really care about this kind of reporting, buy a newspaper. Uh, support it. Uh, uh, what you say is unfortunately true. There's way too much clickbait. But the, f- the fact is, I, I think going back well before the Internet, kind of did us in or started to do us in, uh, we had a tabloidization of American culture that I think shifted a lot of news resources away from really important news to things that are sort of trivial in our lives. And that's part of the, prob- part of the problem we're dealing with when we look for serious news coverage. I still think there's great reporting and investigative reporting happening, though. You know, Margaret Sullivan, the uh, public editor for the New York Times, a few months ago did a two-part series based on the Spotlight movie about what is the state of investigative journalism. And she basically talked about it being an endangered species. But I noticed that a lot of the comments and replies to her tweets and her emails were newspapers saying, wait a minute, we have a really strong and great investigative team. Paper down, somewhere down in Florida, I think the Baltimore Sun. And I'm actually going to be back in New York next weekend because I'm a judge for the, the DART Awards, which recognize journalism that does a good job of reporting on trauma. There were excellent investigative pieces entered into this, this contest. So it's, there's really good work being done it's just competing with a lot of other noise and it's really competing for revenue because people aren't buying them and that's the revenue that we need to do what you saw in that movie. So that's why I hope everyone here subscribes to a newspaper. The movie kind of depicted the Spotlight team only covering one story for several months. Is that how it actually was 15 years ago or did you cover, or were you researching multiple stories at once? No, we always did uh, one one story at a time, and the time we would take to do it would vary. Sometimes it would be three, four months. Sometimes we'd spend a year. The last series that I was involved in, in 2006, we did, we took 15 months on unscrupulous uh, debt collection practices. Um, so it varied. I mean, typically we would prospect a story for a month or two to make sure it was important that we could prove it, which is often a hurdle. 
and that it would have an it would have an impact and we could affect change and once we reached that point and the answer to those questions was yes we would we would launch in this case it was unusual because we had a new editor who walked in the door and basically asked us to uh, investigate this one priest so it, it was a, a different uh, a different approach to put it mildly I'm one of the people who geeked out um, at the sequence where you analyze the data set of priests, and I think uh, the data component of stories like this and stories before and after are the reason why uh, investigative data journalism is a thing now. Um, so can you talk about how that actually went down? This is a reference to the scene. Yes. It's a montage of scenes where we're compiling a database of, mm -hmm. of bad priests, essentially. The, the church in Boston, the archdiocese, kept essentially a phone book that had a directory every year of all the priests and where they were located. We went through it once we realized that if you were, say, on sick leave, that might have actually meant you abused a kid. Uh, in real life, that those three very riveting moments you saw in the movie were three and a half incredibly tedious weeks of slow, painstaking work. Hi, my name's Asta. I'm an investigative student at Columbia. Uh, my question was about the process of writing. So when you initially uh, were assigned to do the story uh, and you weren't even sure if there was something to uncover, as you came across different pieces, as you said earlier, how did you put them together to make sense of, of the story and, the, and paint a narrative? Were we as uh, disciplined as we should have been? No. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this... One of the great things about this film is it portrays us as we really are, you know, as we stumble around in the dark, just clueless, looking for the story, thinking it's A, and then finding out that it's actually quite different and much bigger, and then, of course, arguing over when to publish it. And, uh, and, and that was a real argument? It was, although the decibel level was a, a little bit lower, but you know, Mike Resendez admits that he tends to fly off the handle every now and then, and he, need, he needs an editor to tell him to shut up, and, which is what happened. I mean, probably the simplest reporting plan was that we divvied up people. You take this lawyer, I'll take that lawyer, I'll take this victim, you take that victim, you take this bad priest, I'll take this bad priest. And we worked in such close quarters that we were constantly keeping each other updated. And that's the advantage of a, a pretty tight team in a very small space. So that was the most, that was, those are the building blocks. Hi, my name's Zoe Guttenplan. I'm an undergraduate student at Columbia. Um, I was wondering how you'd respond to claims that the nature of the story and also sort of the whole spotlight um, hotline um, created this sort of moral panic that maybe made it difficult to distinguish from real claims and fraudulent claims. You mean, Real and fraudulent claims against priests? Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the lawyers who handled the, the mediation of all of these cases came to the conclusion that only about 1% of the claims were fraudulent. And I mean, it, when you think about it a minute, you have to be pretty, pretty strange to go through a process like that while falsely claiming that a priest abused you. And we, we had, uh, we were pretty rigorous when somebody made a claim against a priest, you know, we, we verified that the person making the claim actually lived in that parish at the time and that the priest was assigned to the parish. And we rarely wrote unless we had at least two victims, unrelated victims, and corroborative evidence about a priest. What happened once the story broke is the church then 
got in a panic, and any time somebody called to report a priest, they immediately suspended the priest and made a public announcement uh, that the priest had, had been accused. The other thing I'll add beyond just the verification, which we were very serious about, is we talked to hundreds of victims. And you know, when people are calling you sobbing with incredible levels of detail, uh, you kind of end, end up with an ear for what's true and what's not. And I can only remember one call where I got where I thought, I think this is not a real call, because a guy called very casually and he said, yeah, I got abused by a priest. Do you have the name of a lawyer I can call? Sounded like a guy who thought there might be some money in it for him. And presumably, hopefully, the system is good enough to weed someone like that out. But I do think Robbie's right. I think uh, we saw that the church began to sort of frantically yank people out of parishes. And we wrote stories about that, where priests who did not have credible allegations of abuse against them, were they being pulled out wrongly? So as we covered the story more broadly, we covered every aspect of it, including that. Was there like an aha moment for each of you that kind of drove you to keep going with the story, like no matter what, you were gonna just power through? We get asked a lot if there was a moment, and I always say there really wasn't so much a moment as a steady, gradual realization of what an enormous story this was. I mean, we went into this truly thinking, are there really more than two bad priests? Because the church had always said there's just one or two and they're an anomaly. And then all of a sudden we were realizing, oh, there could be seven, that's higher than we expected, and suddenly a dozen and suddenly 20. And when we first published our first story about the scale of the problem, we were confident saying there are at least 70 priests in the Boston Archdiocese credibly accused of sexually abusing children. Within a year, we knew there were hundreds. So it was more just the more we reported, the more we were realizing the scale of what we had uncovered. Uh, my name is Manuel. I am not a student here, uh, but I will be. Two questions, if I may. One is, uh, 14 years after this, uh, how is Boston? What has changed? And uh, the more general question is, uh, do you have anything to say about Francis, Pope Francis? The first question is just, how has Boston changed in the past 14 years? Or the church? In, 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 or in this particular aspect, how, Or yes. how has the church changed? What, or what, what has changed, yes. One thing that changed in Boston, and I think it's changed to uh, a good degree uh, elsewhere around the country, is the uh, the local cardinal archbishop has lost virtually all or all of his political power. And uh, that, uh, let me tell you why, just briefly, why that's important. Uh, in Massachusetts, uh, as in most states, uh, uh, caregivers, doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers, uh, if they suspect a child has been abused, they are required by law to report it to, to the authorities, and if they don't, they can be held criminally responsible. And what happened in Massachusetts is that for the 12 years that preceded our publication, there, were, there was legislation every year to include clergymen among mandated reporters, and the Protestant ministers and the Jewish rabbis supported it, and every year, the Archdiocese of Boston managed to get that legislation killed. And if they had not done that, then the Cardinal and all of his bishops could have gone to prison. And as soon as the story started to appear in 02, the legislation came back, it was passed and signed by the governor. That's an example of the kind of power that the church wielded in a corrupt way. Has the incidence of sexual abuse of children by Catholic priests gone down? Uh, certainly it has. Has it gone away? No, it has not. Uh, has the church instituted reforms uh, in Boston? Probably more than elsewhere. To the extent the church has changed in the United States, uh, a lot of that change has essentially come at the point of a gun. Civil lawsuits, threats of criminal prosecution. Uh, yet to this day, very few bishops and cardinals, uh, the people who perpetuated this scandal, 
uh, enabled this kind of behavior and covered it up for decades, uh, almost none of them have faced consequences. And elsewhere in the world, there are still many countries, particularly in the developing world, where priests who abuse children are put right back into ministry. And the Pope uh, has sent some mixed signals, some signals indicating that he's serious about this, but others have, have suggested otherwise. There is that um, searing scene in which um, Sasha is holding the clipping of a story that was done years past, and you're the editor, I believe. And um, how did that scene play out in real life? How did it get into the script, and how difficult was it for you to see that depicted on the big screen? Do you have a week? <laughs> uh, in, in real life, the scene did not happen. Uh, you remember all the old articles that were clipped? In 2001, we did not find that article from 1993, which did run in the Globe. Uh, that article was actually found by Josh Singer, the screenwriter, in 2012. Wow. Uh, and, and when he came to us, and I think his view and Tom McCarthy's view was that the newspaper, and we were not the only newspaper, but the newspaper missed signals uh, that it could have uh, pursued uh, earlier, and I, th I think that's true. So uh, Josh sent me an email saying, um, did you know about this? And I read it, and I said no, but it was 1993, and I, was, I had just become Metro editor two weeks before that, so technically it happened on my watch. So all of a sudden there's a scene in the film in which uh, Michael Keaton is, uh, takes a big body blow for that. And of course none of us remember that story, but um, I'll take the hit. Um, at the end of the film, it shows where all the victims started to call in. And I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about that. Uh, what was that really like? How long did it go on for? And did it uh, add more to the story? Did you write about it after that? Uh, that scene is exactly what it was like in real life. We came in on a Sunday, not sure if calls would come in, and the phones rang off the hook from people all around the country. And although the movie depicts that maybe we could have reported the story a few years earlier than we did because we missed clues, if we had, the stories would not have gone online. This is the early days of the internet. We put our stories on the web, which meant that people all over the country were reading them, so we began to get tip calls from all over the country. It was hugely helpful because it began to verify for us priests that we already knew had been accused. Suddenly, we had another 10 victims of, of many of those priests. Um, and those calls came in, they still come in. You know, we are now getting calls from victims who say they want to come forward for the first time. So the phones rang for a very long Having time. Having seen the film, has the film sort of occasion? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, there are definitely oh, the, more people coming forward because yeah. of the movie. Yeah. And we're, we're getting emails from people literally all over the world who are wanting to talk to us about, about their abuse. The, the, the film ends with the phones ringing off the hook, and in the next several weeks, 300 victims just in the Boston Archdiocese called us. Okay. Uh, to report what had happened to them. And in many, many cases, we were the first people they had ever told, including, and this is the case I remember the most, and you'll understand, an 87-year-old man from Millinocket, Maine, who was calling to tell me that he had been abused by a priest in 1926 at the age of 12. And he had lived his whole life with this burden, thinking he was the only one this had ever happened to. Thank you for speaking oh. truth to power. Thank you. On that note. Thank you to Sasha Pfeiffer and Robbie Robinson. 
Okay, Lisa, it's time when we talk about our recommendations, what we've been watching and what we've liked lately. Have you seen anything good? Yes, I think seeing, I would call it experiencing. I'm going to recommend an immersive 360 piece, which is this area that I've been getting a little bit interested in lately. Frontline has been experimenting with virtual reality and immersive 360 video. And this summer, three former J-Schoolers went to the South Sudan and took with them one of these 360 camera mounts to document the different problems that are creating famine-like conditions in the area. They rigged the mount in a hospital, in a transport airplane cockpit, and on the ground as food dropped around the cameras. Luckily, the cameras survived. Can I just ask you for yeah. a little clarification? Because we hear the term VR used about this technology a lot, but we're not we're actually talking about immersive 360 video, right? It's not there's nothing virtual as in artificial about it, correct? Well, this is a little bit fuzzy, but I think it's I would I would say that immersive 360 video is a kind of virtual reality in the sense that when you put the goggles on, you are in a virtual world that is not the world you're actually standing in. But it's not a made-up artificial world. That's right. And purists will say that it's that it should not be called virtual reality. But most people use the term. And I think it's just this idea that you've kind of gone away from where you really are. Um, and within that category, it's the immersive 360 form of it. Right, because we're seeing so much uh, huge growth. All the platforms are offering this. We know Google and Facebook are investing millions and millions of dollars right. in it. And that for gaming, it's also a big thing. But when we talk about VR, we are talking about real places and real reporting. And real video that's actually been shot. And so what they did was they really tried to merge it with Frontline style and Frontline's you know brand of important stories about important issues. And I would have to say that it's really the closest I've seen to narrative 360 journalism at its best. So I would recommend it highly. And I would recommend watching it with the goggles on because it's a different experience. Yeah, it's an interesting moment in the development of the technology. That's great. And um, you, what have you been watching? Well, I just saw something that has really stayed with me as well. Um, a new short film from The Intercept, which you may know as the news organization right. where Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras and a bunch of other really talented people keep an eye on national security issues. They just, um, their video department called Field of Vision just posted a new short film called Like, directed by Garrett Bradley, about these places called click farms in Bangladesh. If you can believe it, there's a market for buying likes on Facebook. Um, a pay-per-click market that generates an estimated $200 million under, in an underground market annually. So it's filmed in the Bangladeshi capital, Dhaka, which they say apparently generates 40 to 50 percent of the paid likes that you see on Facebook. Um, so I do recommend it. It's definitely food for thought in these times of metrics. Wow, it's language that I've never even heard before. Click farms. Yeah, it was really interesting. That's it for this episode. On Assignment is produced by Asta Chaturvedi. Thanks, as always, to our funders of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and to Columbia. And to our talented student fellows, Daniel Litke, Erica Glass, and Laura Brickman. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. And thanks to our sound engineer, AJ Mangone. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod. Let us know what you think and review on iTunes, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. Until next time, everybody. What's the Dan Rather? <laughs> Courage. <laughs> <laughs> Onward. <laughs>